Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Merry Christmas. I'm glad that you are here. I hope you've had a great morning already, seeing the decorations as you came on campus and hanging out with each other and singing songs to Jesus. Yeah, praise the Lord. Yeah, you can give the Lord a hand for that. We can do this all day, just so you know. Lunch doesn't have to start at 12. Who said that rule? We can go tell one, right? Like, we can do this. Um, just a reminder before we jump into the message today, something Pastor John, our executive pastor, shared with us a couple weeks ago is, and I thought it was a crazy stat, nine out of 10 people, regardless of their religious affiliation, will celebrate Christmas this year. And uh, he also shared with us from a study that the majority of those people who don't normally go to church, if they were invited during the Christmas season, would attend. And so we want to encourage you to do that, to invite folks to church. Uh, we've got invite packs at the back, and uh, Pastor Dave will mention them at the end of the service. Uh, but I want you to be thinking about who, who do you know that needs to hear about the love of Jesus? Because they might not necessarily end up at this church. Like they might be in from out of town, they might be a neighbor, and God's got a different church for them, but God might change their life forever and change their eternal destiny as a result of uh, maybe being in our Christmas Eve service this year. And so uh, we're going to have four of them. Uh, if you haven't registered already for the Christmas Eve service, I hope you will. Uh, one of those four hopefully works for you time-wise, and you can bring some friends and family. You have to have a ticket. They're free, but you have to have one uh, in order to get in here and make sure we have enough seats and all those things. And so it's going to be a great Christmas season. I was telling the first service, just as I sat on the front row and we were singing those songs the first time, I know we gathered together uh, last year, and we had a great time, great service, and all that kind of stuff, but I feel like we're back this year. And I've got some, yeah, for real. And uh, for, like I said, we can clap, keep clapping. <laughs> um, I think God's going to do something special this year. I don't know what it is, uh, but I hope you, you sense that as well. And I'm going to pray to him. We're going to be in a unique passage today to kick off Christmas series. It's in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9. It's, so don't, if you're offended, we're going to get to Luke 2 eventually. Don't worry. Uh, but Hebrews chapter 9 today. And so let's, let's pray. Father, uh, we come before you and… Uh, are so grateful that you would send your son. We would have never even dreamt that up in order to solve our problem of sin, that you would come here yourself, put on flesh, live the life we couldn't live, and then die the death we deserve. We would have never dreamt that up if you didn't tell us that you did it. And thank you for doing it. And I pray for everybody here that knows your son Jesus as Savior, that regardless of what was on their mind when they stepped on this campus today, when they leave, they would be longing and longing more and more for him to return. And I pray for each one of us uh, that might be here that don't know you yet. Maybe there's people that are here because somebody's going to buy them lunch or because they are curious or, or maybe they like the guy who came two weeks ago, never been to church, just came here. Father, I pray that you would do something in each one of their hearts that either saves them or draws them at least a step closer to you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're kicking off this series called Anticipating Christmas, and I wonder what you're anticipating this Christmas. Because you think about it, it is a season of anticipation. There are always lists of movies, and some of you have probably already started watching, you know, Home Alone or different ones, arguing about whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie and getting into all that stuff. And, but there's always, no matter what list you come up with, there's a movie that always shows up on people's top Christmas movie lists. And TNT and TBS will sometimes play it for like days straight, a Christmas story. And the story with Ralphie Parker, you know, the adult version tells, and the whole movie, he wants a Red Rider BB gun. That is correct. And there's all these little vignettes, like these stories that happen where there's like a kid who sticks his tongue on a frozen pole or dogs come running through the house or there's the fragile leg lamp and like all these other things. But underlying all of it is the desire for the Red Rider BB gun. 
And everybody tells them the same thing. His mom tells him the same thing. His teacher tells him the same thing. Even Santa Claus tells him the same thing. What does it say? You'll, You'll shoot your eye out. That's right. But it's a whole movie just about anticipation. And even if you never wanted a BB gun, even if you never had a desire for that present, even if you hate Santa Claus, like all that stuff, you've all had anticipation. And so you can connect with the movie. And I want to ask you today, what are you anticipating this Christmas? What are you, and the way I've titled the message is, what are you waiting for? But the word wait can be used synonymously with hope or anticipation. Because what we're waiting for is what we're hoping in. And so what are you hoping will happen this Christmas? It's not just in movies. It happens in real life, too. Uh, some of you went Black Friday shopping. Uh, my wife, she thinks she's pretty sly and shrewd that she does all of her Black shop Friday shopping from the living room of our house uh, online. Uh, I like the chaos, and I talk to people who like the chaos. I have a sister-in-law who was shopping at uh, South Point Mall on Black Friday. And uh, yeah, those of you who are, I know we've got some people here from out of town. Uh, the local news, the reason why people said, ooh, when I said that, is there was a shooting at South Point Mall on Black Friday, and I was asking my sister-in-law, like, what was your experience? You know, there's thousands of people there, but what was your experience of that whole thing? And she told me how she had been where that was, where it all took place, but she was actually on the other end of the mall when the shooting happened. She didn't hear the gunshots. She just saw people running through the mall from the other side to where she was at, and she said the screams kind of escalated, like some people started screaming, then more people started screaming, and she didn't know what happened. So she said, I actually, my first thought was, is there some Black Friday deal? Like everybody's <laughs> running to the thing. And then, and then she said, and I saw on the faces of all these people, they were terrified. And she didn't know what was going on. She just knew there was chaos. People were scared. And she had parked by Macy's. And she said, so we started to exit through Macy's. And then the workers were hiding behind their, you know, their cashier stands or whatever. They're hiding behind that. So that she said, I figured they knew what was going on. I said, do you know what happened? They said, no, we don't know what happened. And they're just terrified. They're just hiding. And she goes, I went to leave, and she actually said when they left the, the doorways of Macy's, there was a pair of shoes. Someone had run out of their shoes leaving because they were so scared. And the people were standing outside texting and calling the people that were still inside. And when she told me the story, I thought, well, that's a picture of what many of us experienced over the last couple of years. We had expectations. She went to the mall thinking she was going to get a Black Friday deal or she was going to have some you know, Christian chicken and waffle fries and get her nails done and hang out with her friend. And you have expectations for how life's going to go. Rarely does it go that way. Oftentimes there's tragedy. Many times people get hurt, sometimes even indirectly because of the ripple effects of other people's sins. Those of you who know the story of what happened there know what I'm saying. And then there's a lot of people that are scared, and a lot of them don't even know why. And we don't know who to blame. And so some of us start blaming each other even in that process. And, and in the midst of that world, I want to know, what are you anticipating this Christmas? I asked that question on my Facebook page, and several people responded. If you want to see all the responses, you can go to my page. Um, I won't share the names of the folks, but one, one gentleman said that he's lost the joy of Christmas. He has a hard time even decorating. And he said his anticipation is a rekindled passion and a closer walk with Jesus. One young lady said that she wants to see fire from heaven in her brother's heart, that his heart will belong to Jesus. One person just wrote, relief. I'm praying for relief. I don't know the story behind that. That sounds heavy. One gentleman said, no more COVID ever. I lost my sister this February. A few people said, for Jesus to come back. One guy said it like this, wouldn't it be cool if Jesus' return happened on the 25th? What are you anticipating this Christmas? 
And I want you to ask yourself that question as we walk through this passage in Hebrews chapter 9. I'm just going to tell you Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to go to a few verses. We cannot mine all of the truth that is in Hebrews chapter 9 today. There's a lot of great stuff there, but hopefully I'll whet your appetite and you'll go back and want to study more of it yourself. I'm going to focus specifically on verses 24 through 28 today. Uh, But to give you the context of what's happening in the book of Hebrews, it's incredible. I'll tell you, here's the summary of the whole book. Jesus is better. Hey, we're going to do a series on the book of Hebrews uh, in 2022, and what it does is chapter by chapter just goes through and says, Jesus is a better sacrifice. Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus has a better covenant. You don't follow the old covenant. He's got a new one. It's better. He's a better mediator. And here's why. Because the people that he's writing to in the book of Hebrews are people who professed faith in Christ, but were tempted to abandon their faith in Christ. And if we're honest, probably everybody here at one moment or another has had feelings about that or thoughts about that. Their temptation was to go to comfort, to go back to rituals that that were soothing to them, to go to safety, because the reality is that when Christ calls you, there's a cost, and there's a risk in walking by faith with Him. Now, some people remake Jesus, and they make Him real safe and comfortable and all that. I get that. But it can be dangerous, and people want safety. And what they wanted is they wanted comfort with no cost. They wanted rituals with no risk. They wanted safety, which means you have no Savior. We would never do that, would we? And so in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, what's happening is uh, we've been being told how to approach God and how approaching God now through Christ is better than the way they used to do it through the tabernacles and the high priest because he's a better sacrifice. And we'll jump in. It's ju- he's just said uh, in Hebrews chapter 9 that there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And then verse 24, he says this, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, talking about the tabernacle or the temple, which are copies, some of your translations may say shadows, of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now, present tense, to appear. There's going to be three appearances in this passage. Hopefully you'll pick them up. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, he's already done that, but to save those who are in the climax of the passage, eagerly waiting for him. And so the climax of this passage, I asked you, what are you eagerly waiting for? What are you anticipating, hoping for? What do you want to happen? The climax of this passage is eagerly waiting for him. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing is saying the second coming of Christ is the greatest expectation you can have. And he's arguing for why that is in this passage. But think about things you've eagerly waited for. Some of you, can you remember when you were a kid how much you wanted presents? And some of you adults are looking like, when I was a kid, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I want presents now. Like, I remember when I was a kid, like, it didn't matter what anybody said about Christmas. I want to know what I was going to get. <laughs> like, it's about the stuff. And so... I remember one year, my mom left me home alone. I told, the, I told this story one time at a Christmas Eve service, and, and it's what my daughter did a year later that I need to share with you. Uh, one year, my mom left me home alone. I couldn't wait to find my presents, and so I started scouring through our whole house to find where does she hide my Christmas presents. They were in her closet, just so you know. Parents, heads up. If they're in the closet, that's a tip. Move them. But at any rate, um, I went in the closet, dug through underneath this blanket. I found the coolest remote control car. I was so pumped put everything back, tried to cover my tracks, but I wasn't that street smart at about 10 years old. 
And so about five minutes later, I called my dad, said, Dad, if by chance I get a remote control car for Christmas, busted right there at that moment. Can we build a track in the backyard? My mom got home. It was awful. We'll just leave it at that. We don't need to call CPS. It was bad. And um, I told that story a year later. I'm talking to one of my kids. This is about 2012. And uh, she says, Dad, remember when you told that remote control car story? I said, yeah. You and mom are good hiders. <laughs> AKA, I've been looking everywhere for my stuff. Do you ever share stuff with your kids and you think you're being more vulnerable, they're getting to know you, and then afterwards you go, why did I do that? Yeah, ah, that's in my life. That's what it is. And so, but there's this eager desire. This one, I can't even wait. Have you ever said that phrase? I can't wait for this. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about for the second coming of Jesus. Because you realize what this was, and how do you know? Well, you look at the first coming, what we celebrate this time of year. In fact, if you walk through this passage and, and you look at it again, you might notice there's three different appearances of Jesus that are mentioned in this passage. There was His past appearance in verse 26, and that's what we talk about this time of year when He came, when God came and put on flesh and died for our sins. There's what He's presently doing, that's in verse 24, He's appearing on your behalf before God right now. And then there's verse 28 that we're just, just we're reading that He will appear today for our message. I want to ask you three questions about your hope. And I don't know what your hope is. And whatever you thought of at the beginning of this message, I said, what are you anticipating this Christmas? Well, some people wrote on Facebook. And the three questions are not just random questions that I have. They come from this passage, and they're based on these three different appearances that are stated here. And the first question is simply this. Does your future hope change who you are? Does your future hope change your identity, who you are? And look at what he said about the past appearance. This one's based on the first appearance of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. Second part of the verse says, but as it is, He, talking about Jesus, has appeared, past tense. So that's the Christmas story. Once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And so that idea of appearance here is what theologians call a theophany. The word theophany is uh, two Greek words put together. Theos means God, and the second part of the word is another word that means appearance, when God appears. And what you do if you read the Bible is you see continually God's giving partial appearances throughout the… Now, if He appeared fully in all of His glory, we would die. So there would be nobody to write about it. They'd be melted. They'd be gone because His holiness, their sinfulness. But what you see are things like Moses walking through the wilderness, and there's this bush that's on fire that doesn't go out. It's this burning bush story, and God is, it's a theophany, it's an appearance of God. Or you read about Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments are given, and the mountain shakes, and there's thunder and smoke, is God revealing Himself, a part of His characteristic, not fully, but a part of His characteristics through the thunder and smoke. One of the most clear passages is Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has this vision of the Lord, and he finds himself before the throne room of God, and he says, I, I saw the hem of His garment. And these angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. And Ezekiel has it and Jeremiah has them. There's different people that have these theophanies, these appearances of God. But all the Old Testament appearances of God point to one appearance that is to come. It's the one we celebrate this time of year. It's when He has come, the arrival of God in the flesh. Amen? But here's the crazy part about that. The majority of people miss it. Like, think about important things that could happen in your life, and you, you miss them. Like an anniversary, or you forget your spouse's birthday, or like there's things that can happen. 
Can you imagine missing the, like, people, and here's the deal. Let's put this in Bible context, like, not just, because here's what happened, Matthew chapter 2. What happens when I say people miss it is these wise men come into town, and they're looking for Jesus because they saw His star, okay? Some of you know this story. And they go to Herod, who's king of the Jews, not even fully Jewish, and so he doesn't get all this stuff, and he's just trying to rule. He wants power. This is idol. And so um, they come to Herod, king of the Jews, and say, we're looking for the one born king of the Jews. And he doesn't know where to look. Isn't that crazy? So he calls some Bible scholars, and the Bible scholars come in and tell him Micah 5.2, he's born in Bethlehem. And then they leave. That's the crazy part of the story. Like, you've been studying this your whole life. You're a Bible scholar, and you've been waiting for the Messiah for thousands… Because let me put this in full context of the Bible. If you read the Bible as a whole, do you know what Jesus has promised? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. What happens, if you're not familiar with the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3 is when sin enters the world. And so Adam and Eve, they cover themselves, and they're ashamed of their sin. And then God comes and He curses the serpent, He curses the woman, and He curses Adam. But in the midst of that, Genesis 3.15, God says, I'm going to send a seed through the woman, and then that seed, a son, is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so anybody who's reading the Bible is going, all right, well, where's the son? Who's the one that's going to destroy Satan? Where is he? And then Eve has a child, if you're reading the Bible. And Cain and, is it Cain or Abel? Nope, not them. Okay, well, then this guy comes on the scene, Abraham. God has a special relationship with Abraham, and he promises Abraham a land, a seed, and a blessing. And the seed is a son, and the son's miraculously born. Maybe he's the son that God was promising in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. His name is Isaac. Nope, not Isaac. Well, maybe he'll have a son. Nope, not Jacob, not Esau, not any of these guys. Maybe, and you read the book of Ruth. And you're like, wow, it's an amazing story. And then there's this guy, Obed, that has a child named Jesse. Oh, it's going to come through the line of Jesse. And he has a son named David. Maybe it's this guy, David, because God's got his hand on David, not David. But then David's told in Samuel, you're going to have a son. So is it Solomon? It's not Solomon. And then the prophets start telling us things like Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. When this son is born, he's going to be born of a virgin. That's not normal. You're like, thank you for that amazing observation of the Bible, Pastor. Uh, Micah chapter 5, we're even going to tell you where he's from, and it's going to be in Bethlehem. But then somehow Hosea says in chapter 11 that he's going to come out of Egypt. How's he going to be born in Bethlehem, come out of Egypt, be born of a virgin? This could never happen. Then it happens, and they miss it. Can you believe that? Like, you read Matthew 2, and you're like, these guys are just, they would take a nap. Like, who knows? Like, what are they doing? You study, so did they say to themselves, oh, it's Micah 5 2, we're going to go back and study the Bible rather than go see it? Like, how crazy is that? But then, how many people are going to gather in Jesus' name this year, sing joy to the world, the Lord has come, and now know the Lord? Can quote Luke chapter 2, oh, he'll be born to a, a son in the city of David, a savior, swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, but not, not get Jesus. Because maybe they've done what the Hebrews were tempted to do. And instead of even pursuing Jesus, they're actually, they've made up a different Jesus. And He's comfortable. And He's safe. And, and I'll tell you something. Jesus didn't come so that we could hold candles and sing a song of remembrance about His birth. Not wrong to hold candles. We're going to do that at our Christmas Eve service. Not wrong to talk about His birth, but don't miss who that is and why He came. I was riding in an Uber about two weeks ago. Driver's name was David, and uh, David and I were talking. He's a mystic Muslim, and we started chatting about Jesus, and he told me that he knows Jesus better than most Christians. And I said, all right, I'll play. Let's go. 
<clears throat> so he said, uh, I said, can we just phrase it a little different, David? Do you mind that? And he said, because I think you might be right in what you mean. Uh, let's just call them church people. Let's not call them Christians because Christians are following Christ. And said, I think people do weird stuff with Jesus. And so let's talk about this. And he knew the Bible better than a lot of church people, actually, and had read it. And we talked through it. And I just said the most important part. I said, what do you think happened? Do you believe Jesus died on the cross? He's like, oh, yeah, I've read that. And he's, we were talking about him knowing that the Bible says that. And I said, what do you think happened at that moment? He said, well, I think Jesus became somebody else on the cross. Okay, I listened to him talk about that. And I then asked him a question. I said, where did you get that? Like, how did you decide that Jesus became someone? Because it's not in the Bible, just in case you don't know. And uh, he said, he basically said, I made it up. He didn't say it that way, but he goes, well, I just believe. And he kind of talked through it like people would do. And uh, then I said to him, I said, would you consider reading the Bible? Why don't you just read the Gospel of John? Not that it would be wrong to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, whatever. But just read John and ask yourself, what if what Jesus said about himself is true? I challenge you to consider that for this Christmas. Because what a lot of us do, even in the church, because I told David, I said, I'm going to pray for you that what you said at the beginning of our conversation would be true, that you would know Jesus better than most Christians. I said, right now, I think you do know him better than a lot of church people. But you're wrong because you do what most church people do. You've made him into somebody you're comfortable with. And you just can't do that because then you miss your Savior. And why did he come? Not for candles and not to sing. Well, that's what we do. And so why did he come? Well, look what the Bible says. What did our passage say? He talks about some stuff we don't like to talk about. But as it is, he has appeared. So this first appearance, why did he come the first time? Once for all, at the end of the ages, this is a key phrase, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. To which I started asking myself this week as I read this, why sin? I mean, I know I'm a pastor and so I'm supposed to be like, if you go home and somebody says, what's the message about? Sin. What do you say? He's against it. Okay. <laughs> like, I know it's bad. Like, I get that. But this week I just started asking myself, like, why is sin so bad? And you're like, ooh, dangerous question, pastor. Like, no, don't worry, I ended the right conclusion. But but let me share with you some ways that sin is a problem. And they're all from the Bible. And so if you don't like these answers, email God and uh, he'll <laughs> talk to you about that. Um, just the, they'll pop up on the screen. Uh, first reason, it's why some people are sick. So sin causes sickness. It doesn't cause all sickness. Read John chapter 9. But if you want a passage for this, and I've had people leave our church while saying this before, so I understand if you get offended. First uh, Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's talking to the Corinthians. And they're worshiping God and pretending like their sin's no big deal. And he says to them, that's why some of you are sick and some of you have died. So sin is actually dangerous. Sin hinders our prayers. Psalm 66, verse 18 says this. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Isaiah 59, 2, if you need another verse for that. But your iniquities, iniquities is a Bible word for sin, by the way. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Miss blessings was the third reason uh, that I came up with. I was reading through some things on this. And you think about it like this. Like, have you ever, parents, have you ever not given your kids something and didn't tell them? It wasn't really a punishment. It was more like, hey, we were going to go get ice cream, but the kids are being bad. Let's just not go. Or I was going to give them this gift, but, man, they're kind of being little jerks. Nope. Well, listen to what the Bible says, is your father, thinks about our sins. It says, your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. We miss blessings, hinders our prayers. Some people get sick. If you have the Holy Spirit, you've experienced this one, number four, inner turmoil. 
David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, says this in Psalm 32 about his not confessing it. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Simple reason, and I could give a lot of verses for this, but God hates sin. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19 says this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him, haughty eyes, which is another way to say pride, uh, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Mm, heads up, social media. This last one's the worst. Sin brings on God's wrath. A lot of people don't like to talk about this, but it's all over the Bible. So apart from making your religion more comfortable to you or safe, listen to what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we are by nature children of wrath. We just did a series on Ephesians. Romans chapter 1 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 gives this list of sins. It's not exhaustive, but it gives an idea. But put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So the reason why that's the worst is because that's telling you that in your sin, you have an omnipotent, omniscient enemy who's coming after you. Omniscient means he knows everything. Omnipotent means he's all-powerful. So let's just talk about your resources. How are you going to fight this enemy? You got no chance is the answer. And so God's wrath, why did Jesus come? It wasn't just to be a baby born in a manger. He came here, it says, to put away sin. He's coming to deal with your sin. Why? Because sin is a big deal. In fact, it's at the cross that he absorbs that wrath of God on your behalf. Amen? It says here that he came to put away. What does he mean by put away sin? Well, it's interesting, especially when you put it in the context of all of Hebrews chapter 9, which I told you, you can't, we can't cover all of it, but when you go back through, it's talking about the superior sacrifice of Jesus. Because with bulls and goats, and what happened in Genesis chapter 3, when God put skin on people, when He put animal skins on people to hide their nakedness, what's happening all through the Old Testament and all the old religion is never that sin's being put away, it's being covered up which is what many of us do today with our sin. We cover it up. For some of you, let that hit you because you're hiding sin. Maybe nobody knows about the pictures you sent on text or the addiction that you have or the pills or the money you took or that's covering up sin. And some of us, we justify our sin. And maybe you have told people, maybe you tell a lot of people, maybe it's therapeutic for you to talk about your sin, but then you talk about why it's okay because of how your parent, my dad always was angry, or my uncle was a drunk, or and we justify it, or we explain it, we rationalize it. You don't know the pain that I've been through, or at least, and if any of you said this, I've said this, well, at least I don't fill in the blank. What we're doing is we're covering up our sin, but what Jesus does is He cleanses us of our sin. And so you see in Hebrews, you just go back a, a little bit in, in, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, verse 9, start reading the second part of the verse, it says, according to this arrangement, talking about the old system, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience, that's internal, of the worshiper, but deal only with, and it talks about external things, food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. What's the time of reformation? 
But when Christ appeared, oh, there's that word again, appeared, theophany, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the one that's made with hands, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, it was annual before. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serving the living God? You can, that's why I asked you the question, does your future hope change who you are? Because here we're talking about an internal transformation from the inside out at the core of who you are in your identity. You can be cleansed. Amen? Psalm 103 and verse 12 says, it's as far as the east is from the west, is how far He can remove your transgressions from you. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful. It's not based on your faithfulness. He is just. He will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But we often forget verse 10. If you claim you don't have any sin, you make God into a liar. And so I just want to, I know it's not normal in the middle of a message to give an invitation, but who cares what's normal? That's American stuff, okay? Normally what happens is at the end of a service, you go, all right, if this happened or that happened and you feel like and then pray and do that. Here's the deal. If you need to confess sin, do it now. If you're a believer, you need to be made right again with God, do it now. If you're not a believer, He can change you at your core. You don't have to cover and hide. He knows it all already. That's why His wrath's coming against you. But when you place your faith in what Christ did as a superior sacrifice on the cross, He absorbed that wrath on your behalf, and you can be forgiven. Not that just the sin's gone as far as Jesus from the West. You are changed at the core. He cleanses, it just said in this passage, your conscience. See, nothing can do that. Pills can't do that. Talking to a friend about it can't do that. Only God can do that. And that's why the first coming happened. Don't miss it this Christmas. Second question. Does your future hope ignite a present passion for Jesus? Does your future hope, whatever it was, whatever it is, does your future hope ignite a present passion for Jesus? And we'll go and look and see what Jesus' present appearance, what is that like? And it says in verse 24, for Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands. So where is he at? He's in heaven which are copies, or some of your translations say shadows, of the true things, but into heaven itself, now, present tense, to appear in the presence of God, and this is crazy, on our behalf. That's, I mean, do you guys get this? Like, do you understand? He's a, he's a mediator for us. That's how he's serving right now in heaven. Uh, do you know what a mediator does? A mediator brings two parties together. And so you think about who the two parties are. He's talking to God on your behalf. Who's God? God is holy. He can't fully reveal Himself to us. We'd be destroyed. Habakkuk says he cannot even look on sin. Who are we? We're sinners. If we claim we're not sinners, we make Him a liar. And so how in the world can that happen? Jesus is on our behalf mediating right now. He's our bridge. Amen? That, and then the picture that he's giving in this passage is, and I told you, we don't have time even to read all of uh, Hebrews chapter 9, is he's talking about something. You read, go read it on your own this week, Hebrews chapter 9. It's amazing. He's talking about the way that people used to approach God. And if you want the bigger picture, <laughs> um, if you're new to the Bible, this isn't the most exciting book ever, but Leviticus chapter 16 is where you get all the details. Some of you have read your Bible and you're like, I'm going to read through it in a year, and you get to Leviticus and you're like, 
I don't know about that. John, I don't know. And so, but Leviticus chapter 16, here's a summary of what Leviticus chapter 16 says, is that one day a year, one guy would go to one place on the day of atonement to atone for all of the sins of the nation. It was the 10th day and the 7th month, and he would go in and he'd take a ceremonial bath and he'd put on certain linen clothes and he'd put a linen tunic over top of it, and then he'd sacrifice a bull. That was the first sacrifice for himself because he had to deal with his own sin. Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus didn't have any sin. And he sacrificed a bull for himself and his family, and he'd go sprinkle it on the ark, and then he'd come back out, and there's two goats, and you're like, man, it's like a zoo there. And there's like these goats come walking out, and why does he have two of them? Well, the goats don't know it, but one of them's going to live, one of them's going to die. And so he casts lots. I could just imagine like a Disney remake of this with the goats talking. Like he casts lots. Why is he rolling? What's going on with these dice? Like what's happening here? One of the goats is going to get slaughtered for the sins of the nation because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The other one, and this is where the, the term scapegoat comes from. And you've heard this maybe in scandals before or in court cases. It comes from Leviticus chapter 16. The scapegoat, what's going to happen is the high priest is going to come pray over the scapegoat and they're going to set it out in the wilderness never to be seen again. It was actually an illustration of the psalm that I quoted to you, Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as you removed your transgressions from you. But it had to happen every year. And it was all this external stuff, and all it did was actually cover your sin. And so the author of Hebrews is going, that's just a, did you see in the text where it said copy or a shadow? I was thinking about it this week. I was reminded of a, a family in our church. Um, they were in the first service, Keith and Britton Williamson. About four years ago, they adopted um, one of their sons. His name's Corbin from China. And then our church, we were praying for him and watching them through this journey. And I remember it online, they had posted um, that, that Corbin, that we had found out who it was and they couldn't put the names and all that kind of stuff at the time, but said he, he's not even able to crawl. He was old enough that he should have been walking. And he's got some physical problems. And our church started praying. And then I knew that he had been brought home, and the first Sunday he was going to be brought home, at the time we were meeting at Pine Hollow Middle School down the street, they were out in the hallway, and I saw this little boy from China running all over the place. And I walked up to Keith, I was like, I thought he couldn't crawl. Like, what's going on here? He's like, well, the church started praying. Then next thing, he skipped crawling, he just started walking. Now he's running everywhere. I was like, that's awesome. And uh, we started to talk, and I remember Keith telling me, he's like, the gospel became so real to me as we adopted our son because he said, I had to stand before the judge, and the judge asked me if I would ever leave or forsake my son. And so I had to make a declaration that I was going to bring him into my family, I was going to give him a new name, that I would never disown him, and I would never leave him or forsake him. And then I looked at Britton, the, the wife, and I said, Britton, why is he running everywhere? Like, why he just keeps running? Like, as we're talking this whole time, kids just running all over the place. And she goes, he discovered his shadow. And so he was literally like, I'm going to get it. Like, he's, I'm going to catch it. Like, he's chasing his shadow. And I can see my own shadow right here. And here's the reality with a shadow. A shadow's real, but it's not the real thing. It's pointing to the real thing. That's my shadow, but it's not me. And I thought about Corbin's story. I thought, someday this little boy, he's, gonna, he's chasing his shadow now, but he's going to learn about himself. And he's going to hear this story. And he's going to know about these parents, a father who loved him so much that he traveled a long distance to come get him, and that great sacrifice to himself brought him with all of his needs into his family and gave him a name and never left him or forsook him. But I hope that that just points him to the bigger story of what God has done for him. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, for those who believe on Jesus Christ, he's given the right to be called children of God. That's you. You know what Jesus is doing for you right now as his child? He's speaking on your behalf, your behalf, not just the nation, not just the, on our behalf, before the Father, as our mediator, that should ignite a love in you for Jesus. 
because you've been forgiven much. That's why the sin's a big deal. Not about the amount of sin you've done, but about the holiness of God. See, your sin, your required forgiveness is not about how many bad things you did. It's that you sinned against an infinite and holy God. And when you grasp that, it changes you at your core and should ignite a passion in you to love Jesus. One of my favorite stories in the Bible I was reading this morning, Luke chapter 7. There's this woman um, who comes and sees Jesus and realizes He's the one who forgives sins. Uh, the context of the story is that Jesus is hanging out at this religious guy's house. His name is Simon. And Simon brought Jesus there, and they're talking over this meal. And this woman comes up and sees Jesus, and she just starts to weep. Her tears fall on Jesus' feet. And then she gets down on her knees, and she starts to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. And then she takes out this oil and anoints his feet with this oil. And, and then the religious guy is going, he doesn't know what kind of woman this is. See, she had a reputation because she had a lot of sin. And the guys who were there knew her reputation. You can figure out why. And Simon knew. And Simon was thinking these things about Jesus, and Jesus knew that he was thinking these things. And so Jesus said to Simon, hey, Simon, there's um, two people that have a debt. One has a huge debt, one has a small debt, neither one of them can repay, and the debt gets canceled. Who loves more? Love's an interesting term in that story, isn't it? And Simon answers correctly. He goes, I suppose the one who's forgiven the bigger debt. And then I love that the, the Bible author, Luke, is so clear in the details of the story. He says, Jesus turned to the woman but addressed Simon. And he says, Simon, when I came to your house, you did not wash my feet, which is a custom, just like being nice. You didn't anoint my head with oil. This woman hasn't stopped kissing my feet, washing my feet, and anointing me since she got here. And then he I believe, probably grabs her face and says, this woman loves much. And then he says, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. The point of the story is when you realize how much you've been forgiven, it changes how much you love. I heard someone else talking about that story a couple weeks ago. I was reading it, actually. It was a guy who passed away, but a Bible scholar named Robert Faulkner, if you want to look it up. And he was talking about how he was speaking the gospel to a group of destitute people, and he read the story from Luke chapter 7, and there was this woman in the audience who started sobbing uncontrollably. And as a speaker, you know that sometimes people make noise and do things, and stuff happens, and you just got to keep going, but then there's times where you have to stop. He said, I had to stop, and I asked this woman what was wrong, and I spoke some words of encouragement to her, and, and then she said to me, is he coming back? The guy who forgave the woman, I heard that he's coming back. Is he coming back? And the Bible scholar said, accurately, he could come at any moment. And then she said, will you ask him to wait? Because my hair's not long enough to wash his feet yet. That's worship. Do you love him? Do you have a passion for him? Does your hope change who you are? Does your hope give you a passion for Jesus? Does your hope give you an eager expectation for his return? That's our third question. Look at verses 28, 27 and 28. Verse 27, pretty sobering. And just as it appointed for man to die once, and that's true for most, I mean, there's Lazarus, there's exceptions where people have been raised from the dead and then they die again. If they didn't die again, they'd be here, right? Like we'd want to hear their testimony. So just as appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, he's already done that. That was the first coming but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And before we can unpack what that means, get go back to that sobering verse, verse 27. Why does He tell us this? And just as it's appointed for man to die once, 
you can't reschedule that appointment. There are people that you've probably lost in the last year. Death is real. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. But, and so is the judgment that comes after. If you've trusted Christ, He already dealt with the sin because He's not coming back to deal with the sin. So your judgment's been dealt with. That's amazing. But you're going to die. We're all going to die. Don't miss that. We had a gentleman who visited our church two weeks ago. I think it was the first time he had ever been to church. I know it was the first time he'd ever been to this church. He was looking for help. And one of our elders after the service was able to sit down with him and pray with him to receive Christ. It was pretty incredible. And now, praise the Lord. Give him a hand. I got word, um, I got word this week that that gentleman has left this earth. He's no longer with us. And praise God, this eternity has been changed. But death's coming for each one of us. We don't want to think about it, but in this room yesterday, there was a funeral um, for a woman connected with our church. And I don't want to be overly dramatic, but as I was preparing this message, I was studying verse 27. Just God's timing in this is, is crazy to me. I got notification from our executive pastor that a, a guy in, that's one of the people I love more than anybody else in this world had died, passed into eternity. That was the guy who had led me to Christ 26 years ago. Uh, his name's Mike Thomas, and I knew that he wasn't doing well, like he was on a ventilator in Michigan um, since October, but when you get that information, it was like a kick in the gut still. And uh, Mike, I told John when we were talking, I said, I, and I've met people that you guys would consider celebrity Christians with big platforms, evangelists, pastors, whatever. I don't think I've ever known anyone who's told more people about Jesus than Mike Thomas. And the reason why, he would give out this little booklet uh, that had the information about how to have a relationship with Jesus, confess your sin, ask Jesus to be your Savior, uh, to every new person that he met. And he gave me one uh, when I was 18. That's how I came to Christ. And afterwards, I asked him, I said, hey, I don't know anything about the Bible. Can you teach me the Bible? And, and Mike was one of the first people that taught me uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, what it's like when you enter heaven, that you're going to get crowns in heaven. And I was like, I don't understand eternal rewards. What are you talking about? Like, and he goes, Paul's talking to the Thessalonians. He's saying they're the crowns. It's the people you impact while you're here. They're going to be your rewards when you get to heaven. It blew my mind. And then here I am. I'm thinking about this guy who shared the gospel with all these people. A lot of people don't know why he gave out the little booklets. The reason why he gave out the little booklets is because in 1959, so think about how long ago that was, a guy stuck one in a toilet paper roll at General Motors, and Mike's dad, his name was Lazarus, Lazarus Thomas, was a forklift driver at General Motors, and he grabbed one of those booklets out of a toilet paper roll at the shop where he worked, and he put it in his wallet, and he just kept taking it out, and he'd read it over and over again until one night he came running out of his bedroom and yelling to his family, I'm saved, I'm saved. Now, they weren't church people. They didn't know what that meant. They thought he went crazy. Like, what's he talking about? What's he been saved from? Like, what's, he, what's going on? And then uh, he stopped swearing, he stopped drinking, and he started taking his family to church. That was what they could see. And Mike said, I remember that first time we went to church, we sat on the front row, and then afterwards we got in the car, and my dad turned around and goes, what that pastor was talking about, about trusting Jesus as your Savior, that's what happened to me. And Mike said, an 11-year-old little boy, I thought, I don't know if I believe that guy back at that church, but I have a new dad, and I like the new guy better than the old guy. And he trusted Christ as a Savior, and then started handing these little booklets out that told people how they could know Christ. And then I, here I am, and I'm getting this news that this guy who impacted my life so, so incredibly um, has died. And I thought, I wonder what that's like for him. And I wonder if he met my dad, who influenced my dad before my dad had come to Christ. And my, my wife's dad had died a few years ago. I wonder if they've taught. And then I thought, I wonder if he knows who the guy is who stuck the booklet in the toilet paper roll, because nobody knows his name. 
And I thought, I wonder if they've met. And then I thought, who cares? That's not the point. It's Jesus. It's Jesus that we're eagerly awaiting. It says here in this passage, it says, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save. What are you talking about save? Though? If you already dealt with sin, aren't we already saved? And Lazarus Thomas yelling, I'm saved. What are you talking about saved? Here's what I think it's talking about. I don't know this for sure, so you can study this on your own. But in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, it's talking about Jesus as our mediator. It says this, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, which I think the promised eternal inheritance is it's fully experiencing everything that God's promised for us because none of us have done that yet. So Jesus came and he put away sin. Why, is it, why do you still struggle with sin? Because you're still here. It's what theologians call the already not yet. Jesus already dealt with sin. You've not yet been removed from the presence of sin. The penalty is gone in your life if you know Jesus Christ. Your conscience is cleansed, but you've not experienced a sinless world yet. But you will. Death, where's your sting? Jesus dealt with it. He defeated death. But you're still going to die because you live in this place. Already true, not yet fully experienced. I believe the eternal inheritance is when we get to be with Jesus, it's all reality. To fully receive everything that he's promised us in Scripture. Amazing. So what's it going to be like when he comes back? Well, I mean, I could tell you stories and read books. Can you imagine? But let me just read you verses from the Bible. So you think about the second coming. The Bible says this, actually, which I think informs the idea of thinking about a second coming. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 says this about his returning. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all, think about that, all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 31 says, he'll send out his angels, probably all of them again, with a loud trumpet call, and they'll gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. First, Corinthians, or First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 says this, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. What does that sound like? And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. <laughs> Unless this coming is going to mean wrath for you. This is pretty incredible. And so what, is it, what does it look like? What does it look like to see Jesus? And the best passage I know to look in the Bible is in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 when they, John gives us, there's a theophany, an appearance of God where he gives us a glimpse into heaven. And if you read chapter 4, there's all these colors and there's, you know, carnelian and there's sounds and rushing waters and a sea of glass. Or, it's like amazing. But the whole point is who's on the throne. And they're singing holy, holy, holy to the one on the throne. Then chapter 5 says this. In Revelation chapter 5, it talks about not just the one who's on the throne, God, but also the Lamb, that's Jesus. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is not a normal lamb. Listen to this. With seven horns and with seven eyes. Okay, not a normal lamb. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp 
and golden bowls full of incense. What's the incense? Look at which are the prayers of the saints. And so we can <laughs> pray to them today. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with, in one voice, a loud voice, thousands and thousands, myriads of angels, all the people, but one voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What are you waiting for? Has it changed you? Is it changing you? Father, we come before you today. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son to appear. And we remember that. And we look back to that. And I pray if there's anybody whose sins haven't been dealt with, and they didn't do it when I said it in the message, that right at this moment they would trust your son Jesus Christ as Savior. If that's you, you're watching online, or you're sitting in this room where I'm standing, don't miss this moment. He's calling you. Those who are thirsty, come. Those who are longing, come. Those who need to be forgiven, come to him. Ask him to be your Savior. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will change you. Father, for those who've been changed, I don't know what we were thinking when we came on this campus. Only you know of all the hundreds of people that have been here, what was going on in everybody's story. But I pray for all of us as we leave, we'd be longing for you to come, that you, would, you could come before this prayer's over. But if you wait until the 25th, we're okay with that. If you wait until we trust you because you're saving more and more people, will you use us in that process? Will you help us store up more crowns in heaven? Will you give us a greater anticipation of your return? I pray none of us would miss it. I pray none of us would miss you and what you did at the first coming, and I pray that we'd be so excited and so ready for the second. Father, I pray that we would, we would offer worship to you with our lives, with our words, with our songs, with our money, with our time, with our talents. Father, that would be pleasing to you. And we come to you as we read about the prayers of the saints. And we pray right now, God, I pray there's somebody who's thinking about inviting somebody to the Christmas Eve service. Will you save that person? God, there are people who've lost loved ones and they're hurting and they're thinking about that. Will you, will you heal the hurt? Will you give us a longing, a distaste for this place? I pray no one here would have the, the feeling of, I just want to enjoy this place some more and then come back, that we just want you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.